to the place in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, where we are going to read this morning, verses 16 through 21. And uh, this is one of the classic uh, passages of Scripture. In fact, verse 21 uh, is probably the most concise, clearest statement of the gospel, maybe in the Bible, next to John 3.16, probably. Um, and so it's a great passage uh, for us. So... Um, let me read to you 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21. Uh, this is the word of God. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So there's something that happens to you when you get older. Uh, And let me just warn you about this. And the the thing that happens to you when you get older is things on your body hurt. Now, Now, let me explain that to you. That's probably not news to you. But what happens is when you're younger, you go outside and you work in the yard and the next day you're sore. And you know why you're sore? Because you worked in the yard and you used muscles that you don't usually use. So you're sore. But when you're older, you wake up some days and you're like, that hurts. And I didn't do anything yesterday. What's going on? Why does that hurt? Right? So... um uh, and, and you try to figure out what's going on. Well, the reason why it hurts is because it's wearing out. Or maybe it's not because of something you did yesterday, but it's something you did to your shoulder playing high school football when you were 17. And now it hurts. It hurts. So what do you do? Well, there's this thing. This stuff called blue emu oil. <laughs> and you see it advertised and you won't stink. And, uh, and you think, wow, I'll give that a shot. And so you rub it on your shoulders. And I'm here to tell you, it works. <laughs> your shoulder, and I don't know if it's because... You believe the advertising? I mean, I'm prone to that. Tell me something's beautiful and, and on TV. And, you know, there's a uh, uh, 3% of the people in the world buy stuff just because they saw it on TV. I'm like that. So, so you put it on your shoulder and guess what? Your shoulder doesn't hurt anymore for a while. Then it hurts again. So you put the blue emu oil on it, stops hurting for a while, and then it hurts again. And so what you recognize about that is, is that to get, make this shoulder really quit hurting, 
is you need a new shoulder. And ultimately, that's the only thing that's going to solve your problem. Now, the fact is, most of us would spend our time satisfied with blue emu oil. God is not. God is not. We just read some of the most wonderful words ever written by a human being. And none of you fell out in the aisle in tears, overwhelmed by the immensity of the goodness and the grace of God. Now, maybe that's because you're constrained by the people sitting next to you. Maybe that's because you didn't really listen. Maybe that's because of any number of things. But I would submit to you this morning, Paul has identified in this text not only the wonder of the gospel, but why you and I will nibble around the edges of our predicament and never get to the heart of the matter. Here's the thing. This is a rich passage and probably the most profound passage about the nature of the gospel ever. But what Paul says about this te- about us in the beginning of this text is something that is profound. He says he no longer views himself or Jesus or other people from a fleshly point of view. I would submit to you today the reason why the why this text does not move you or change you or reorient your thinking this morning is because you are thinking from a fleshly point of view. And you're thinking from a fleshly point of view because what you hear in this text is there is there is a problem and this problem is sin and that Jesus has come and that now we're a new creation and everything is hunky dory. But you see, that's that's the problem that we have here. And so that by, by suddenly by looking at people, looking at ourselves and looking at Jesus from a fleshly point of view, what we do is we shrink the gospel down to this, that if if that what the gospel does for us, what the work of Jesus Christ for us is, it makes us better people. It makes us better roommates. It makes us better husbands. It makes us better wives. It makes us better employees and employers. It makes us better fathers and mothers. It makes us better sons and daughters. And so the new creation that we are talking about is simply we change our behavior now in light of the fact that Jesus has done something for us. And so because of that, as a result of that, we nibble around the edges about our lives and we miss the monumental thing, the phenomenal thing, the unbelievable thing about the depth and the glory and the wonder of the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. And the reason for that is we view ourselves from a fleshly point of view because we think that sin is something simply behavioral. And what we do is we think that what we can do is is just address our sin, address our behavior, address the behavior of the people we love, and then we can get at what the gospel is. And Paul's saying that is viewing yourself and viewing Jesus from a fleshly point of view. 
Because what he says to us in this passage about God in Christ reconciling uh, us to himself and that he, the sinless one, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God is such a profound and distinct and otherworldly thing to us. We'd rather often just settle for a little bit of behavioral change. Scott, put, put my notes up there. So, so what he's getting at here is that that the and and what I think is the problem is that we misunderstand that we simply look at sin as this thing we do, the things that we shouldn't do, and the things that we ought to do that we don't do. And so the question for us today, and why we misunderstand this, and why the, our gospel is so small, and why frankly you are powerless to do much about this is because what we think of sin uh, in, a, in a small way, we miss it. Because here's the thing. The question for you today is, is sin a verb? Or maybe is sin just a verb, right? Is it it's something you do or something that you don't do? Is it simply activity, right? And so he says here in this, in this text, he speaks about actual activity, right? What he says is that God was in Christ not counting their trespasses. That is stuff that you do. He even says there in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no doubt about it that lying, cheating, stealing, lusting, all of those things are sin. Those things, those, those actions are sin. But sin is also more than that. It really is a dominion because in the same chapter in Romans uh, and where Jesus is here in this text is said to be made to be sin. In Romans 3, 9, he says all both Jews and Gentiles are under sin. In other words, that sin in a, in a way lords over and owns and that we are under its power. Right. So if it's simply a verb, a number of acts, then we'll interpret the new creation in an overly simplistic way. And we might continue to view ourselves and others from a fleshly viewpoint. Scott, take my notes down for a second. Let me listen. I want you to hear me on this, okay? Because what I'm saying to you is the heart of the gospel. If you are here this morning and you're hungover, I'm here to tell you, stop drinking. Stop it. But that's not all. Because if you just stop drinking, instead of being a drunk person in rebellion against God, now you'll simply be a sober person in rebellion against God. And all you will have done is address the behavior and not gotten to the real issue. And the real issue is your and my independence and rebellion against a good creator who made us and who loves us. And that, at the center of our hearts and at the center of our lives, is our problem. And it is such a massive problem and such an insidious problem. It is killing every single one of us, and most of us don't know it. That's the power that it has over us. It's a matter of life and death. And we think it's simply a matter of reorienting our behavior. Stop drinking. 
But don't stop there. You have to ask the question. We have to ask the question. We have to get at, what's the gospel for anyway? Is it simply making us better people or is it making us new people? Because if it's simply making you a better person, you're in the wrong place. Because Jesus Christ is in the business of making new people out of people that are unbelievably and honestly in and of human power, incapable of being renewed. It's such a powerful and, and, and rich place for us. So, so what Paul does here in this text, Scott, put my notes back up there. So um, what, what we have to say here is, is that we have to ask this question that Fleming Rutledge asked, that, that this text asks and answers for us. What sort of predicament are you and I in that we should require the crucifixion of the Son of God? I mean, honestly, that is, that is the question of the gospel. What is it about me? What is it about you? What is it about human beings that is such that the only fix, that the only thing that can address that is the sinless one becoming sin for us And bearing in his body and in his life all of this dominion and all of this behavior that is true of me that is in rebellion against the one who created me and loved me. You see, that's the thing that is so profound about this exchange is, is that what Paul sees about us, what he sees about the church in Corinth is we are tempted all the time to simply measure the work of God and measure our work simply by behavior. But the problem with that is, is that our behavior is not enough. Becoming better husbands and fathers and sons and daughters and mothers and roommates is a great thing. And trust me, it'll make the people who love you, it'll make their lives a lot easier. You'll be easier to live with. But in the end, where's the gospel? Where's the actual work of God? Where's the righteousness of God? Where Where is it that we see this, that suddenly something happens in me that I am not just better, but I'm a new creation, right? And so uh, why would we need for him to be made sin? And all of this is from God. Because you see, the thing is, if we were in a situation that we could fix ourselves, if we were in a situation that we could somehow or other manage, then, then, then we would, then we could do it. And we would do it. And again, that is what makes sin so terrible because it tells you the lie that all you need to do is change a little bit. And what the gospel says to you is, you don't need to change a little bit. You need to die. And be raised to newness of life. And you can only do that in the work of Christ. So uh, the issue with the uh, uh, Corinthians is that they are falling back under the power of sin. And it is demonstrated in how they view the gospel and therefore other people. So they view Jesus as someone who simply helps them to manage their lives. They look at Paul as kind of a failure because they're not really getting at the power of the gospel because his gospel is, it it seems like it's weak. It's about a crucifixion. It's about, it's about the death, a horrible, shameful death of someone on their behalf and this odd thing that God raised him from the dead. 
And so rather, and so what they would rather have is a gospel that helps them maintain and manage a, 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 a sense of, you know what, uh, what Jesus supplies for me is a few tips and a few helps, and he actually motivates me a little bit to do better. But we don't see that we are under not just a, the need for a behavioral change, but we are actually under the dominion of an alien power that we don't recognize, and we don't recognize it because we are tempted to love it, and because we are tempted to love it and we don't recognize it, it is killing us. And so Jesus must come into our world and take us out of that by becoming sin for us. So there's an apt illustration, and I, I want to use this. Uh, I read this book um, uh, several years ago. Uh, it's called uh, The Biography of a Place, uh, Childhood, The Biography of a Place, and it's by this guy, Harry Cruz. And, uh, well, let me just read you this. So he writes of a community of, uh, of fallen humanity in his memoirs. He's desperately poor and deprived in rural Bacon County, Georgia. I don't know where that is, but it must be a bad place, as you're about to see. Okay? Desperately poor in Bacon County, Georgia. He and his black friend, Willa Lee, daydream about the models in the Sears catalog as a form of escape. Now, Sears. You've never heard of it. When, when I was growing up, there was this store called Sears. And, and they had a catalog that they would mail to you about the size of a phone book three or four times a year. And the great thing about Sears was you could buy a house at Sears, you could buy your underwear at Sears, and you could buy a lawnmower at Sears. Ten percent of all retail in North America was done by Sears. Okay? And so they would send the catalog out, and people like me who lived in rural uh, the rural south we would pour over that catalog and pour over and pour and just look at it. And everything in it was beautiful and wonderful. So he says that he and his friend Willily would daydream about the models in the Sears catalog as a form of escape. Now he says, nearly everybody I knew had something missing. A finger cut off, a toe split, an ear half chewed away. Now, let me just stop here for a second. <laughs> When I, when I grew up, the place I grew up, almost every man who uh, worked around us on the farms were missing appendages, fingers, ends of fingers, toes, that kind of stuff. Not uncommon. And, and it was not uncommon for guys to have one eye because a nail flew up and hit them in the eye. Like he says here, a staple uh, from a, a, a glancing fence staple. But I got to tell you, I didn't know anybody who had their ear half chewed off. And I've pondered that this week since I've thought about that. Like, how does that happen? Do you lay down on the bed and there's some beast in your pillow that chews on your ear while you're asleep and you wake up the next day and half your ear is gone? Or do you walk into the barn and a a possum dives off the rafters and starts chewing on your ear? How does this happen? I don't know. I don't know. But... um, it's a bad place where everybody's got an ear chewed off, right? So uh, a toe split, an ear half chewed away, an eye clouded with blindness from a glancing fence stable. But the people in the catalog had no such hurts. They were not only whole, they were also 
beautiful. But even at an early age, however, Mr. Cruz knew that the pictures were lying. Under those fancy clothes, there had to be scars. There had to be swellings and boils of one kind or another because there was no other way to live in the world. Now, let me just say, we are quite adept at finding another way in this church. No boils, no brokenness underneath the surface for us. We are the beautiful models in the Sears catalog. And I had decided that all the people in the catalog were related. Not necessarily blood kin, but know one another. And because they knew one another, there had to be hard feelings, trouble between them off and on, violence and hate between them as well as love. Right? Of course there is. Because, you know, and he's imagining that all these beautiful people, because they're people, no matter how beautiful they are, the fact of the matter is that they and you and I, I mean, the, the fact is the people in Bacon County know that they're fallen and know the world's fallen when they look at their, their hand and they see part of their finger missing. Right? That's, there's something clearly wrong here. And I can't fix that. But the people in the Sears catalog, they're working so hard to present this beautiful affect and this beautiful life where none of the, none of the, the fall doesn't actually reach us, that we just simply need a little better education and a little, little help here or there and everything's going to be okay. But what Paul says is, no, you, you, you are breaking consistently the law of God. And not only are you doing that, but you want to do it. And that it is attractive to you and that these things that are going on in us are things that, that, um, that, that, that just tweaking around the edges, nibbling around the edges of our behavior is never going to get at our issue. Next slide. So what, what you have to see about this is and what Paul wants us to see in this text is that, that when he says, that for our sake, he who knew no sin became sin for us. He wants us to understand and see the depth of the predicament that we are in, right? He says that the hideousness of crucifixion summons us to put away sentimentality and face up to the ugliness that lies just under the surface. The scandal, the outrage of the cross is commensurate with the offense and ubiquity of sin. Ubiquity, what a great word. Ubiquity just means that not that not, so, not just that something's everywhere, but it's in and around and through and that it permeates every part of us, right? Now, let me just stop for a minute and say something about that. I'm glad we fool each other thinking and and demonstrating that we're better than we really are because we couldn't sit in a room together right if if all of our depravity were on full display at all times but but the fact the the the, the fact of the matter is the 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 bottom line for us in this is that that's actually the predicament that we find ourselves in right that sin actually affects every part of us. And so he says, views of atonement wrought by Christ that do not acknowledge the gravity of sin 
are untruthful in two respects. They are untruthful about the human condition and they are untruthful about the witness of Scripture, Old and New Testament alike. It is not so much something we do, but something done to us with our cooperation by our mortal foe that is sin, the alien power that has lured us into becoming its agents. There's no room for sentimentality here. The stakes are too high. The cross rears up over all human life because it is the scene of God's climactic battle against the power of a malignant and implacable enemy. You see, what we have to see here is, is that we are in such a state that the human uh, condition is, is such that unless God acts decisively on our behalf, unless he enters into our world and the sinless one becomes sin for us, unless that happens, unless that exchange happens, we are doomed and there is no place for us to go. There is no hope for us. There is no life for us. That simply all we are left with in this world is nibbling around the edges and trying to make ourselves able to live with one another and able and somehow or other to make this world as comfortable, comfortable as we possibly can. And the terrible thing about it is, is those of us who know the great joy and the profound nature of the exchange that has been made on our behalf will often satisfy ourselves with simply nibbling around the edges, right? Now, here's the great news in this text. And the great news in this text is, is that while we were trespassing, while we were breaking the law of God, while we were joyfully on our way away from God, what does it say? It says that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. God saw your rebellion. He saw your willfulness. He saw your independence. He saw it. He saw it and he would not let it stand. And he sent Jesus Christ into the world, agreeing within the Trinity to become sin for for us so that now we can become the very righteousness of God. Nothing else will do. There is nothing else you can do. And so as we look at this text, that is the, that's the profound thing that is happening there. And our tendency is always to minimize sin, to see it simply as I need to change my behavior a little bit and everything will be all right. Now, here's the way this works. Um, many of you live in the city of Richmond. And there's something I've noticed about the city of Richmond especially this time of year. And you know what it is? It is potholes. There's a lot of holes in the road in the city of Richmond. Now, and some of those holes, I drive over the same roads, they've been there since January. And you know it's bad when the lead news story on the 6 o'clock news is Mansu City for new front end in his car because of the pothole out in front of his house. Now, Here's the thing, and this is, this, this is the way it works. So, you know, after some publicity and that kind of stuff, they'll show those guys out there. They got their truck out there by the pothole. They dump some asphalt in it. There's a guy with a heavy thing, pounding it in, pounding it in, pounding it in. They smooth it out, and I'm glad. 
because I don't want to tear out the front end of my car. I'm glad that hole's fixed. That's a good thing. It's a good thing. And we, and we go on about our business. We satisfy ourselves with that. Now, what I know about that is, is that over time, that hole is going to come back. And by the nature of roads, it's going to be worse than it was before. It is, right? And so, so what happens there is, and what happens to us is, we get so confused about the nature of the gospel because what the church does and the message of reconciliation is this. We're not here to fix your potholes. Jesus didn't die to fix potholes. Jesus died to give you a new road that will never get potholes. When you satisfy yourself with simple behavioral change in your life, you're just patching up a pothole. You're not understanding the exchange that was necessary for you to change. But, but, not only that, when we think that the gospel is somehow or other us feeding starving people in South Sudan or drilling wells or simply doing that, we should do those things. But what we don't see in that is the absolute imperative of proclaiming to them the work of Jesus Christ, that he who had no sin was made sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are failing to understand the gravity of their situation because they can have plenty of water and still be alienated from God. You see, what we need, what you and I need, is not simply to be better, but to be new. (laughs) What you and I need is something much more profound than what we think we need. So the great exchange that happened in Christ is the only solution. And so what Paul says here to us today is to see that, to have our vision changed so that we can see the very thing that God has done for us in Christ And that we can receive the reconciliation that Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose again to give us. That is what is essential. That, that, that has to happen. And so, so the, the, the fact is because we miss and because we don't see the gravity of our sin, we don't understand the fact that with, without this activity on our behalf, it doesn't matter how good a husband you are. It doesn't matter how good an employee you are. It doesn't matter how good a son, daughter, or whatever you are, that unless we see and understand the exchange that has been made on our behalf and receive the reconciliation that Jesus Christ died to give us, we're worse off than we were left alone in our sin. Hear these words of institution uh, for the Lord's Supper. The disciples prepared the Passover, and when it was evening, Jesus came with the twelve, and they were reclining at the table. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine 
until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's confess our sins together. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Christian, hear the good news. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The scriptures tell us on the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, that every time you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I must say that Paul did not know anything about church growth or cultural relevance, because why in the world would you command the church that you want to grow and to reach out to people to make sure that as a part of their service, they proclaim to death? Especially to people like us, you know, Because really what I'd rather have proclaimed to me is, hey, come to our church, come sit among us, and we'll make you better. In fact, in fact, you can have your best life right now. That's what we're here for. We're going to make you better. And that's, hey, I'll settle for that. When what we recognize is, is what the message of the church is, you need to be made new. You need to be killed. And you need to be brought back to life in Jesus Christ. And so what that tells me is, and what makes me grateful this morning, and what makes me glad, and what what changes my orientation, and what gives me hope in the midst of a lot of hopelessness, is the fact that when we were lost in our trespasses and sins, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And that great fact, that great truth, the reality that I need atonement for my sin and that I cannot atone for it on my own and that Jesus Christ atoned for my sin in his body on the cross by dying, by suffering, by absorbing the wrath of God for my sin. That is the only pathway for me to be reconciled to God. 
And he did that. And what makes me glad this morning is, is that by taking this bread and taking this cup, I get to proclaim to the world that, yes, I am a sinner. And yes, Jesus Christ died for me. The great news today in the fact that sin is a power and it is a a deceiving power and it is so dramatic. The great news for us about that today is, is that Jesus Christ addresses that. If you were just a lemon, we'd have to send you back. But you're not a lemon, you're a sinner. And so because you're a sinner, Jesus Christ died for sinners. God reconciled those of us who were far from him by the death of Christ, even when we weren't looking for it. So my friends, if you've come to that place in your spiritual life where you have no other hope, no other place to go, no other trust, uh, but that of what Jesus has done, the exchange that he made for you, and you proclaim that to a body of believers somewhere, he says to you today to take and to taste and to see his goodness. But perhaps today, uh, this message of uh, the redemption that is yours in Christ, the reconciliation that God has made for you, the, the, the work that when you were uh, clueless about God, he was actively involved in doing the work to reconcile you to himself. If that's meaningless to you, you're addressed in this passage as well because you're viewing Christ from a fleshly standpoint. And so I pray for you right now that the eyes of your heart would be opened and that you would see the necessity and the wonder and the greatness of the exchange Jesus made for you. And so that the proclamation of the death of Christ would be your boast and would be your glory. As the guys come down to help me uh, this morning, let me remind you that the outer ring is wine, the inner rings are grape juice, the bread on this side of the platform is bread that is gluten-free if you require that.